Matthew 6 is where we're at this morning. We've been here for a number of weeks now examining the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we could call it the model prayer. That's what I'm calling it. You call it an Our Father. Uh, this week I heard it called the Disciples Prayer. I'd never heard that term. But uh, the Disciples Prayer saying this was given to the disciples, telling them how to pray. And I, I actually am fond of that term. But here we are in Matthew 6. We're going to read the prayer, which is 9 through 13. Then we're going to read a footnote, verses 14 and 15, that are attached to the prayer that I connect right into verse number 12, which we'll begin to examine this morning. So Matthew 6, verse number 9, this is Jesus talking, teaching his disciples how to pray. Here's the model. Here's the template. And he says this in verse number 9. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done as in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Verse number 14. If ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither Will your father forgive your trespasses? There is, honestly, there's way too much to cover in this sermon in, in one installment. So we're going to have it broken up. We're going to do uh, this week. Next week is Educators Day. We'll take a break and we'll have a sermon uh, specifically geared towards our educators. And then the week after that, we'll do installment number two and we'll finish verse number 12. But uh, what we'll find this morning, we're going to uh, talk about forgive us our debts. And then two, in two weeks' time, We'll explore as we forgive our debtors. So this morning, we'll bite off this small chunk, forgive us our debts. Before I jump into verse number 12, I want to give you two notes of disclosure this morning. A note of disclosure number one is this is Mother's Day. I'm well aware of that, but this sermon has nothing to do with mothers. So <laughs> this will actually be the furthest thing you would think uh, to preach when it comes to Mother's Day and the relationship and the sentiment that, that's involved there and uh, knowing that Educator's Day was next Sunday, I did not want to break the continuity of this series two weeks in a row and chose to do this on Mother's Day and, and something a little bit different on uh, Educator's Day. So it'll be one of the stranger sermons you've ever heard on a Mother's Day. I will tell you that up front, but it will be directly related to Matthew 6, verse number 12 and the model prayer, and it will be deeply and intensely biblical. Uh, note of disclosure number two. I, through, as I prepare a sermon, I will study a lot, I will read a lot, I will try to I get as many perspectives and as much input as I possibly can in a sermon. Uh, I, the way that I think of that in my mind, I call it making honey. That a bee goes and gathers pollen from a lot of different sources and takes it and puts together his own honey. That's how I think of it in my own mind. Whether that's accurate or not, I don't know, but that's how I do it. Typically, I will study a passage, I will get the core content and the main thought and the main thrust of what I want to uh, preach, then I'll build the outline, and then I will begin to study and see what other people have to say in light of my outline. Uh, once in a great while, when I say great while, I mean maybe twice a year or so, uh, I will come across, I've done that process, but then as I begin to study, I find someone else's outline and say, I like their outline better than I like my outline, actually. So uh, that is rare that I would do that, but I feel that when a preacher or someone does that, they should give a, a disclaimer on that. I think it's borderline plagiarism if you take someone's outline and use it as a template and don't give them credit for that. So that, that is actually what I've done this morning. Uh, I have a lot of, a ton of my own thoughts and other people's thoughts, and I've made my own honey, but I have uh, stolen an outline from uh, John MacArthur, who pastors in California, so I'll say that uh, just up front. With that being said, 
Let me jump into the uh, petition and the model prayer here in verse number 12 of Matthew chapter 6. So if I was to take verse number 12 of Matthew 6 and verses number 14 and 15, the footnote on to verse number 12, I could summarize that in four words. So those four words would be sin, forgiveness, confession, and forgiving. If I was to break this down, those would, that would be the main crux of this entire petition is sin, forgiveness, confession, and forgiving. And this morning, we will explore the first two, sin and forgiveness. Uh, here, coming in two weeks, we'll explore the back two, confession and forgiving. And this is where I want to hone in on is laying a, a broad foundation for this verse when we examine sin and forgiveness here in Matthew chapter 6. So Matthew 6, verse number 12, tells us, here's the petition that we should pray. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Verse number 14 and 15 tells us, For if you forgive men their trespasses, so not debts but trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So verse number 12 uses the word debts. Verses number 14 and 15 use the word trespasses. Now both of those words are synonyms to describe what we would call sin. Now, sin is the problem of mankind that needs a solution. And I don't care what worldview you, ex you examine, whether you examine Christianity or you take some other worldview, all worldviews recognize this, that mankind has a problem. Now, they may call it, some worldviews may not call it sin. They may call it a karma problem. They may call it uh, paternal or daddy issues that have trickled down to, to the next generation. They may call it a bondage to my own needs. But every worldview understands this, that mankind has a problem. Turn on the TV, pick up the newspaper, you will discover very quickly, and ignore that, maybe even just look inside your own heart. You'll discover very quickly, mankind has a, a problem and there's something that is a bit off. Uh, in Macbeth, Shakespeare recognizes this. Are there any Shakespeare fans in the room? And you're, okay, there's, there's a handful, all right. So uh, if I'm not a huge Shakespeare buff, I'm, I'm not, but uh, there's a, a portion of Macbeth, one of Shakespeare's more famous plays, that uh, Lady Macbeth has murdered Duncan and she has this guilt in her soul and she is, she's torn because of it. And Macbeth hires a physician to come in and to examine her. And the physician comes back to Macbeth and says, Lady Macbeth's issue is not physical. It's psychosomatic. It is, it is something that's internal. It's in the immaterial. And that is what is weighing on her. And I can't fix that. I can only fix the physical. And Macbeth responds to the physician with a, a famous a sort of a line inside of that play. And he says to this physician, Canst thou not minister to a mind diseased? Pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow. Raise out of the written troubles of the brain with some sweet oblivious antidote. Cleanse the stuffed bosom of the perilous stuff which weighs upon the heart. What, what, what is Shakespeare saying? Shakespeare is saying via Macbeth that there are times in our lives where things weigh on our hearts, where there is something in the immaterial part of us that needs fixing. And he's upset with this physician that he can't fix that. And the physician is right that he, he cannot fix that. Only God can fix that. And the Bible says this. The Bible says that immaterial problem that we have, it declares uh, frankly, unashamedly, unapologetically that that is sin. Now, that is, that's bad news, but the, the real bad news is that there are effects to sin. 
And the Bible clearly lays out that the effects of sin is that it condemns a soul to hell and that it brings a loss of peace and joy due to unrelenting guilt. Now I'll repeat that because that's, those are staunch words. Those, those, are, those are not, that's not small potatoes. The Bible says that the, the result, the effect of sin is that a soul is condemned to hell and that there's a lack of joy and a lack of peace because of unrelenting guilt. Now, if that's true, and I believe that it is biblically, if that's true, that's a problem. That is, that's a deep need. That's something that is extremely serious. And you may think, wow, I mean, you just, check the calendar, but we're in the 21st century, and you just mentioned hell. Like, that's awfully punitive. I don't think that people really uh, talk about that much anymore. Here's the bottom line. This is what the Bible declares, frankly, unabashedly, is that this is our problem. That's the effect of sin. Now, I'm going to do my best this morning as a preacher of the Bible to lay out clearly that I'm not just making that up, that this is what the Bible teaches. Now, if you want to say, okay, I don't believe the Bible, or I don't think that's God's Word, I don't think that's true, no, that's a whole nother discussion. That's a whole nother conversation that's not within the scope of my sermon this morning. The goal and my intention is just to show you what the Bible says about sin and about forgiveness. And it's, it's both pessimistic and optimistic. It's really bad news followed by really good news. So, so hang with me. I want to describe biblically what does the Bible say about sin. And let's describe sin in a vacuum over here. Then let's look biblically at how the Bible describes sin as it attaches to the human heart and how it describes you and me as sinners. Now, those are, those are different, but both need to be understood. So how does the Bible describe sin? The New Testament uses five words, basically, and I'm going to give those five words to you. First, it describes sin as missing the mark. This is the archer's word. This is the word that's most often used of sin, uh, hamartia. This is, this is the word that Romans 3, verse 23 uses. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Not just that we shot at the target and we missed the bullseye to the left or right or up or down, but that we missed the target altogether. That we fall short of God and his perfection and his glory is the standard, and we fall short of that. And frankly, we fall abysmal, abysmally short of that. If, I, if we had an exercise this morning, I said, you know what, we're all going to come up in the, on the platform this morning, we're all going to take turns jumping off the platform as far as we can, and our goal is to reach the back doors. Now, some of you would just fall right here and you wouldn't make it very far. Some of you could make it off the carpet. Some of you may make it 20 feet if you took a, a running jump, but I can guarantee you Michael Jordan himself will not hit the back doors. No one is going to hit that goal or that mark. We will all fall short of it. And when it comes to our sin, we fall short of the mark. We fall short of the glory of God. The Bible describes sin not just as missing a mark, but also as stepping across a line. That there is a boundary, there is a line that is set there, and we step across it, and we, uh, we break it. And this is natural to us. In a weird way, it is. If we see a sign that says wet paint, what do we want to do? We want to touch, right? We see a sign that says keep off the grass. We just want to walk on the grass and not on the sidewalk. I don't know why that is other than sin. There's something inherent inside of us in our nature. We see a line. We see a boundary. Mom and dad say don't do this, and we want to do it. We, we, want, to, we want to step across the boundary. We want to break the law. We want to go across that line. Thirdly, it is, sin is described as breaking the law. 
First John 3 tells us very plainly what sin is. Sin is lawlessness. It's, it's being without the law. It's, it's a flagrant disregard for the law of God. I know what God says. I see it. I know it. I understand it, but I don't care. I want to do my own thing. I want to live life my way. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I want my freedom. I'll do what I want. I'll do as I please. I will break the law. I will. It doesn't, it doesn't matter to me. Sin is further described as slipping or falling. And this is the Greek word uh, paroptima, which you see in Matthew 6 as trespass. Oftentimes it's used as trespass. Other times, Galatians 6, it's brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault. What is, what is that, that fault, that slipping, that falling? It's this, in a passion, in a moment, I'm swept away, I'm carried away by, by my own lusts. Fifthly, and most importantly, because this is what Matthew 6, 12 says, and this is the most scary of all of them. Sin is described as owing a debt. In, in Matthew 6, verse 12, we see, forgive us our debts, the Greek word aphalema. Used here as a noun, and in Romans 4 is the only place it's used as a noun. This word is used roughly 30 times, and five of those times it's referred to as a monetary debt, but 25 of those times it's referred to as a moral debt. And this is important to understand. As we examine the Bible and what it says about sin and the forgiveness that's offered, it's not just some monetary debt that we would think of. It's a moral debt. And there is a difference there. I'll illustrate it this way. If you went down the hill and turned right, you would come very quickly to a BP, the, the gas station there, where they sell gas, but they also sell a lot of food and, and things of that nature. BP, they actually sell a pizza inside of that BP. Who's gotten a piece of pizza from the BP there? Okay. You're my friends, all right? I get their, I get their pizza often. It's, for gas station pizza, it's, it's par excellence. It's pretty good, actually. Let's suppose that uh, a 10-year-old boy wandered into BP, got a piece of pizza, and if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about, got it from the attendant, they put it in the box, they gave him the box, they wrote like one P on it or whatever they scribble on your box, and takes it over to the attendant to pay for the pizza. The attendant says, that's $2. And the boy begins to cry, and he takes out a dollar out of his pocket and says, my mom only gave me one dollar. I don't have enough money. Now, if you were standing next to that boy, that's like Christmas shoes, but with pizza in a gas station. So if you, if you were standing next to that boy, right, Christmas shoes, you would, you would want to buy it for him. Your heart would go out. You would probably say, unless you're just Scrooge, you'd probably say, you know what? Let me cover the boy's dollar. I'll satisfy the monetary debt so that he can go and enjoy the pizza. Now, let's suppose that the same boy went there, ordered the pizza, got the box, took it to the attendant. The attendant said, that'll be $2. The boy took the box and bolted out the door. And he ran directly into the arms of a police officer running in the door. And the attendant begins to scream, stop the thief. And she brings him into the store. And the police officer says, tell me what, what's happening. The attendant unfolds the story. And you see all this happening. You walk up to the attendant and say, you know what? I will satisfy the boy's debt. I'll pay the $2. Let him go. At that point in time, the attendant does not have to accept your $2 as payment. Why? Because the boy owes more than a monetary debt. He now owes a moral debt. He broke the law. Now, it, it's more than $2. Either she can accept the $2 and forgive him, or she can choose not to, and he can be held responsible for the moral debt that he has incurred. When it comes to moral debts, there is no way that you can pay them in and of yourselves. You cannot monetarily buy them. It is something that has to be forgiven. And when we come to the debt that we owe, that, that Matthew 6, 12 talks about, that forgive us our debts, this is a debt that you cannot pay for. This is something that you cannot do in a lifetime or in a million lifetimes. As a matter of fact, that debt gets worse and worse. The, try, the harder we try to work ourselves out of it, the worse it becomes. 
Now, this is, this is not a debt that is easily overcome. It cannot be. It's impossible to. If I told you this morning that you owed me $10,000, I was going to throw you in prison. Give me $10,000 this week. Most of you in this room, you'd be able to scrounge up $10,000 through a relative, through a loan, some way, somehow. But if I told you you owe me $10 billion or else I'm going to throw you in jail, what would that produce for you? Hopelessness. Because you cannot pay the $10 billion. Well, maybe you could. If you could, come talk to me. I'd love to get to know you. Let's, let's go to lunch or something. But odds are, even if you know millionaires, you're not going to be able to scrounge up $10 billion. It's a debt that's too vast. It's too far. You can't overcome that. When we come to the debt that Matthew 6 is talking about, that we owe morally to God, that we seek his forgiveness for, this is a debt that you cannot overcome. It's, it's more than $10 billion. If exercising futility were an Olympic sport, trying to pay for your own sin would win gold every single time. You cannot do it. It's impossible to overcome. And the problem with sin is not just that it's here in a vacuum. It's problematic. It's that it attaches to us. The Bible clearly says not just that there's sin, and that that's wrong, but that we do that. That we are sinners. There's a lot of ways I could show you this, but go to Romans 1. I want, to, I want you to see this biblically, how the Bible describes you and I in our state of sinfulness. I warn you up front, this is not pretty. It will get pretty. It, it frankly, will get beautiful when we get to forgiveness, but right now it will not be. Romans 1. Just to give you a bit of context, we're going to pick it up towards the end of the chapter. Romans 1 describes that mankind goes to great lengths in order to resist God and say no to him. And eventually God says, you know what, have it your way. You want your sin and you don't want me, go ahead. And that's where we pick up in Romans 1. Look at verse number 28. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. And here are these sins. Here are these things that we do to list a few of them. Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. God says mankind knows it's wrong. It's engraved. If you look in Romans 1, it's in through creation, through their conscience, it's engraved in them. But they do it anyway. They have pleasure in those that do them. And he continues, verse chapter number 2, look at verse number 1. Based on this, therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest dost the same things. It's weird, isn't it? We have this repulsion to sin. We see that they embezzled money, or they, they did us wrong, or they envied against us, or they hurt us, but... We turn around and do the same things, don't we? And God says, you judge them and you think that it's wrong, but you condemn yourself all the while. Verse number two. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them would do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? 
Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Look, God is good to try to get you to repent and see that this is wrong, and I turn from this. Verse number 5, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God says you refuse to turn and you are storing up for yourself inside of the treasury of wrath, wrath and judgment against yourself. I, I don't have time to read through the, the whole chapter, but if you look in, in chapter 3, this thought continues. And three chapters are spent describing us, and I encourage you to, to read these three in your own time, but Romans 3, verse number 10, as it's written, there's none righteous, comma, no, not one. I think God knew we would like to insert ourselves there. There's none righteous, comma, except Mark. Except me, right? But just to be abundantly clear, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. Verse 12, they are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There's none that do with good, no, not one. That become unprofitable means like your milk that's gone sour. Look in verse number 19. And this continues to describe us, verse number 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, that saith to them who are under the law that... Every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. If you think for a second, if I think for a second that I will stand before God one day and try to excuse away my sin, the Bible says very clearly that every mouth will be stopped and we will stand guilty before God. We will not be able to wiggle out of it. We will not be able to, well, I just, well, my dad, well, my, no. Every mouth is stopped. Now those are somber words. Verse 23, he doesn't end. Verse 23, he, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is how the Bible describes sin. This is how the Bible describes us. David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. We know that if you're, okay, Mother's Day, mother's in the room, dad's in the room, you know that when you brought that child into the world, they were born with a bend toward sin. You say, how do you know that? Because what do you have to teach them? You have to teach them to do right. You have to teach them to obey. You have to teach them to tell the truth. You have to teach them to not be selfish. You have to teach them not to fight. Why? Because naturally the bend is that I'm conceived in sin. That kid already knows how to disobey and how to lie and how to be selfish and how to punch somebody. That's natural to them. It's our sin nature. That's a problem that the Bible clearly says that is, that is us. And sin is, is the monarch of the world ruling the hearts of men. It's a virus that has infected each and every one of us. It's infected your children that are now, right now I have a, a nine-month-old and a three-year-old. And sin is and will be a problem for them. Sin is the culprit to every broken relationship, to every, to every hurt marriage, to all disease, to all pain and death. It's sin is at the root of that. And the Bible clearly tells us that this is a problem. Romans 1 tells us that sin dominates our mind. Uh, you see in the Bible that sin dominates the emotions, that they loved darkness rather than light. And there's an affection and there's, a, there's an attraction to it in a weird way for us. The Bible tells us in Isaiah that this makes our lives miserable, that there's no peace for the wicked, Isaiah 54. That it eliminates peace, it produces guilt, it robs us of our joy. Ephesians 2 tells us this brings us under the control of Satan, and it makes us the children of wrath, bullseyes for the judgment of God. That, that's scary. That's deeply scary. And what's even scarier is that in our own human power, we can't do anything about it. Humanly speaking, we stand 
no chance to change our state and to fix the problem. Jeremiah 13 says this. Rhetorical questions, but he says it. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to evil. Jeremiah says, you want to do good, you that are bent towards sin, you want to do good? That'll, that'll happen when you can change your skin color. That'll happen when the leopard can change his spots. We would say it this way. That'll happen when pigs fly. Saying it's impossible. You can't do it yourself. Sure, you may do a good deed here or there, but it is impossible to overcome. Before I move on to the good news, I know that's deeply pessimistic. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> before, before I move on to the good news, let me say we, just culturally speaking, we live in a weird culture. On one hand, we live in a culture that values and loves justice. Half of TV is filled with cop shows and judge shows and justice and judgment and the bad guy gets caught and they get locked behind bars. That's half of TV that we, we eat it up. We like it. We see the news that someone did this and we're repulsed by it and we think that they should have judgment. But on the other hand, we're a culture that has refused to accept any culpability ourselves. And it says they may be wrong, they may be wrong, but don't tell me I'm wrong. Don't tell me that I can't do this. Don't tell me that there's some sort of moral standard that I have to abide by. Yeah, that's, that's right for them. That's right for me. Whatever relativism. That we're, we, on one hand, we crave justice. On the other hand, we're repulsed by it. That we think ill of a God who would one day administer justice to people who have sinned against him. But I tell you, the Bible truth is that we've sinned. That's a problem. And the world stands guilty before God and that we cannot fix it ourselves. That is what the Bible teaches. Once again, if you want to say, well, I don't believe the Bible, hold different conversation. But the book teaches that. God's Word teaches that. But it also teaches the flip side of the coin. It's not just sin, the problem, but there is forgiveness, the provision. This is the only way that you escape a verse like Hebrews 10, verse 31, that says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That as a debtor is in the hand of a creditor, so is a sinner in the hand of God. Now that's scary, but the Bible tells us that forgiveness is offered as the solution to this. That because the debt of sin is so large, because the consequence of that sin is so great, that forgiveness is the most basic need of any human heart. Your heart and my heart, our most basic need at its core is forgiveness. This is essential to us. This is blessed. This is difficult. It's essential because Without it, we stand in judgment and we stand to experience an eternal hell. It is blessed because it brings about fellowship and joy and a relationship with God in this life and forever. It's difficult because it costs the Son of God his life. And this need, forgiveness, is the greatest need of our heart. John Stott has a little book called Confess Your Sins, and it wasn't a very scientific survey, but he talked to a doctor who administrated a hospital, and the doctor told him these sort of famous words that, if my patients could be guaranteed forgiveness, then I could dismiss half of them tomorrow. The doctor said half of the things that I deal with are psychosomatic. It's, it's an issue of the heart. It's, that it's the guilt. It's, the, it's all that that even brings about physiologically. I want to do with forgiveness what we just did with sin. I want to examine biblically what is forgiveness. What does that mean? What does that look like that God would give us forgiveness? There are 
There's more than four, but I'll give you four adjectives that would describe this and help us wrap our minds around the forgiveness that God offers. Forgiveness is oftentimes in the Bible described as a taking away. Isaiah 53 tells us that the Lord laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all, that God took our iniquity and he placed our sin on Jesus, and Jesus took that away. Malachi, or, or Micah rather, tells us that thou wilt cast their sins into the depths of the sea. That forgiveness is a taking away of that sin. Forgiveness is a covering of that sin. Psalm 85, 2, thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered their sin. Selah. It's described as a blotting out. Isaiah 43 tells us that I, talking about God, I, even I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my own sake. That I erase them. I take them away. And the end of that verse says that he forgets them. That I blot them out for my own sake and I will not remember thy sins. That he will remember them no more. So here is, here is forgiveness. It's God taking away our sin. God covering our sin. God erasing or blotting out our sin. God forgetting our sin. It's God eliminating our sin. To which we should say glory to God. Thank the Lord. Jesus saves. That's what we sang about this morning. That's what Annie just sang about with the death of Jesus and on the cross. And if, if this ever becomes commonplace to us, that's scary. That we would think that the forgiveness that we're offered in salvation is, is, is just mundane. It's just something that is, that is humdrum. That, yeah, it's just, it's just Christianity. Let's, let's get something bigger or grander. No. There is nothing grander than that. There's nothing bigger than that. That God would forgive our sins. Now, the key to this entire text, when we anchor back to... Matthew 6, verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The key to this entire passage is understanding that there are, in essence, two types of forgiveness. Say, what do you mean there's two types of forgiveness? You could describe it a lot of different ways. I will describe it this morning as judicial and parental. But there are two types of forgiveness. I want to elaborate on those, and I think that this will do this. It will open up Matthew 6 and this prayer and what it means to us. It will also help you understand the Bible as a whole much better and probably eliminate some questions or some doubts that maybe you've, you've had along the way. So let's examine these two, and then we'll take this in for a landing. First type of forgiveness that's offered to us is judicial. This views God as a judge. We are guilty. We broke the law. We must be punished. And Jesus Christ dies on the cross to pay for our sins and to absorb that punishment. And he declares us forgiven based on what Jesus Christ did. This is judicial forgiveness based on the act of Jesus Christ dying for your sins. Your sins are totally and completely 100% past, present, and future forgiven and, and wiped away. Now that's something that we should say, wow, how, how do I get that? That sounds fantastic. I could have forgiveness of my wrongdoings. The, the moment that you or I place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ for his death, burial, and resurrection, that he did that for our sins. This is what uh, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us the gospel is. Jesus dies for our sins according to the scriptures. He's buried. He rose again. When we place our faith in that, we remove our faith in ourselves. We place it on him. Then in that moment, we are forgiven. We're declared righteous. Romans 3 is, is all about that. And that is the Bible truth about, about your sins and how you escape their consequences is that the only way 
to eliminate the possibility of eternal hell and the guilt in this life is trusting that Jesus Christ offers forgiveness to sinners. In case you think I made all that up, let me share a couple verses with you. Matthew 26, verse 28, Jesus says, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Ephesians 1, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Colossians 1, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. 1 John 2, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Ephesians 4, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. In other words... Jesus Christ dies for us in our sins. We place our faith and our trust in him. His death is appropriated for us. Our sins are wiped away. They are gone. They are covered. They are blotted out. They are remembered no more. They are cast into the depths of the sea. They are gone forever. I want you to turn to Colossians 2 to see two verses that I think describe this so beautifully and draws on a, a first century illustration and analogy. Colossians chapter number 2 we'll find the same truth prevented, presented here, that the death of Jesus pays for our sins. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, as the order of those books go. Colossians 2, look in verse number 13. And you being dead in your sins, that's bad news, and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together, that means made alive, there's a contrast there. You were dead, now you're made alive. Together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. How was this done? Verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. In the first century, when a criminal was crucified on a cross, they would nail to the cross the list of crimes that they had committed so that if a, if a passerby came by and saw, hey, there's someone that was crucified. I wondered why, why they were sentenced to death. You would find nailed to that cross a handwriting of ordinances or a list of crimes that they had committed. It would be nailed to say this is what they're guilty of. This is what happens in Jesus' case. What do they nail to the top of Jesus' cross? King of the Jews, right? That's in Rome's eyes. That's why Jesus was crucified. He declared himself to be a king. Rome is the kingdom. Caesar is Lord. They rule with an iron fist. If you say that you're a king, that's seditious. That's treason. You're guilty of death. This is what the Jews use as leverage to get Jesus crucified. This is a crime that they put on his cross, that he declared himself to be the king of the Jews. And what, what the Bible is doing is using that analogy and it's taking and pressing it into our hearts and saying, look, you have been forgiven your trespasses. How was that done? That Jesus Christ took your sins, nailed them to his cross, and he paid the penalty. He died for them. He has suffered for them. He has now then taken them away that, that our ledger, our sin account, grew worse and worse and worse each and every day. And God took that and absorbed that and paid for that, to which we say, hallelujah, what a Savior. This is the Bible truth of forgiveness. I don't have time this morning to explore Romans 8 or Hebrews 10, but maybe jot that in your margin and read those chapters in your own time. They describe the forgiveness that is so beautiful and is offered to us at the hand of Christ. Romans 8, Paul, in a nutshell, says that 
Who is going to condemn me if I, through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, have been declared righteous? He said, who's who's going to condemn me if God has declared me righteous? And because he has declared me righteous through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, I have been saved. Then I know that nothing shall separate me from the love of Christ, neither height nor depth nor principalities nor powers. And he goes through this, this laundry list of nothing can get me away from the love of God. Why? Because I've been forgiven. I've been given right standing. I've, I've been made whole because of what Jesus Christ did for me. Hebrews 10 draws on the analogy of the Old Testament uh, uh, sacrificial system that the, that the priest would go and he would sacrifice. And we're told that through the sacrifice of Jesus, we're sanctified. We're forgiven, we're cleansed, we're made holy. And the contrast is given that the, that the priest would offer sacrifices and he would remain standing and continue to offer sacrifices. But Jesus offers a sacrifice, Hebrews 10 says, once and for all and sits down at the right hand of the Father. That he no longer has to stand and administer the sacrifice. It's done. It's over. He sits down. And through that, we have forgiveness. And verse number 17 of Hebrews 10 says, And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. This is the gospel. This is that we have a problem, and the problem is deep, and we cannot solve it ourselves. But through Jesus Christ, forgiveness is offered. That is, that is judicial forgiveness that now we are given right standing with God. Eternity is secured. We're given the gift of eternal life. I don't have to fret hell any longer. I know that I have heaven. I know that I have right standing with God. That's the forgiveness that is offered. But if that's the only type of forgiveness that there is, then at least in my heart and mind, it begs a lot of questions of Matthew 6. Matthew six twelve. Forgive us our debts, and then he adds this, which makes it even more complicated. It's often misunderstood. As we forgive our debtors. In verse number 14 and 15, in case there was wiggle room or it wasn't clear, Jesus Jesus footnotes it. If you don't forgive men their trespasses, I'm not going to forgive you your trespasses. You say, wait a second, that sounds antithetical to everything you just said. If I have been forgiven my sins and given right standing with God and my sins are removed, cast into the depths of the sea, remember no more, why in the world would I have to pray, Lord, forgive me my sins? Didn't he already forgive my sins? And if I don't forgive someone else, then he's not going to forgive me? How is that possible? It sounds like I'm supposed to forgive someone first. Like, I'm supposed to do a righteous act before I'm saved, before I'm made righteous in Christ. How am I supposed to do that? And this is... This is a, a disciple's prayer. The, the, we remember the address of this. The address is our Father. This is not a prayer to, written to a, a sinner who's in need of salvation, who's coming to God for salvation. This is written to Christians on, on how to pray. So what do we make of that? Why would I have to pray that? Why would Jesus teach us that? Well, to understand it, you have to know that there's There's judicial forgiveness that's offered for the weight and for the consequence of our sin, but there is also what some have called parental forgiveness. You say, what do you mean there's parental forgiveness? We're saved. Sins are forgiven, done, made whole, quickened, made alive in Jesus Christ, but after that, we still sin, do we not? We still do wrong. We still mess up. We still fall down. And we still need some restoration and forgiveness of that in a sense, I'll illustrate it's Mother's Day. I'll illustrate it to your moms in the room. You know that your children, it'd be, it'd be very hard-pressed for something to separate that love. That, that relationship is intact. Your mom, they're my child. It doesn't matter what you do. I'm still going to love you. Why? Because we have that relationship of, of parent to child. 
Those who are saved know that relationship with the Father, that that is secure. But even in a human standpoint, as that relationship goes on, and even though your children are almost guaranteed a forgiveness from you just by nature of the relationship that they have with you, there are times where our children mess up. There are times even when we mess up and we have to ask for forgiveness. But our children, they disobey, they do wrong, they do something. And what do we expect? That relationship then gets broken a little bit. That relationship gets severed. There's a lack of closeness. There's a lack of intimacy. And we expect them to come and say, Daddy, I'm sorry. Mom, I'm sorry. Why? Because they were going to cease to be your child? No. Because they weren't guaranteed forgiveness? No, you, you'd give it to them anyway. You, you know that through your relationship. But for that relationship to be restored and the fellowship and the joy to be there, then a confession and a forgiveness needs to ensue and they need to tell you, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. Now, this parental forgiveness is illustrated time and time again in the Bible. I have more than I have time to illustrate, so I won't give you very many, but I'll, I'll give you a couple. Psalm 51. If, if you, in your own life, if you're sitting here this morning thinking, I know the Lord is my Savior, but there's a lack of connection with Him, there's some sin in my life, and I just don't know how to go about talking to Him, I would encourage you to go pray Psalm 51. Read it, pray it back to Him. It's a, it's a beautiful psalm of confession to God. But David gets towards the end of that psalm, and he tells God, God, forgive me of this, and, and restore this relationship. And he says, he says this in Psalm 51, verse 12, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. What's David praying? David is praying, God, give me back that relationship. I don't doubt salvation. I don't doubt that I'm your child, but restore that joy. Restore that fellowship. Give me parental forgiveness. You can see this as well in Psalm 32 with David. Nathan the prophet comes to David, confronts him. David confesses, and Nathan the prophet says this to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. He tells him, the Lord's taken it away. And then David goes and he prays Psalm 32, a prayer of confession. David, why? Why pray Psalm 32? You already told the Lord took away your sin because that parental forgiveness, that relationship needed to be restored. 1 John 1 illustrates this in verses 1 through 4 that John writes and says, look, we saw the Word. We saw Jesus Christ. We had fellowship with Him. We walked with Him. And we want you to have fellowship with Him. We want you to know Him. We want you to be saved. And then that's the first three verses. Verse number 4, he tells them, and on the other hand, we also want your joy to be full. That if you do know the Lord, we want your joy to be full. And so because of that, verse number 9 happens. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we understand this. As we walk through this life, as we go through the world, as we're in the workplace and as we're, we're combating the world, the flesh, and the devil, all that, takes, all that comes at us on a day-to-day -day basis, we mess up. We collect dust, so to speak, of the world. And we, we sin, we fall down, and there are times, I would say at least daily probably I would recommend that, that you need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I confess, forgive me. Lord, restore that, that relationship. Give me parental forgiveness. Why? Because, because heaven and hell is at stake? No, you've already been saved. Judicial forgiveness. Why? Because you're, you're going to be separated from the love of God? No, but that relationship needs to be restored. And that is the key, and we're going to unpack this further in two weeks' time as we examine confession and then that thought of forgiving someone else. I need to forgive someone else to receive this forgiveness. We'll, we'll unpack that further, but the bottom line of this prayer, it's a prayer of confession by a Christian, by someone who's saved and knows the Lord, that says, Lord, restore that joy. 
Restore that relationship. I know that I do not, I, I don't run the risk of eternal punishment. I know that I've been made the righteousness of Christ. I celebrate my identity in Jesus, but at the same time, God, I feel distant from you and I want to feel close to you. Forgive me. I, I shouldn't have done that. I was wrong. Give me that forgiveness. In closing, I'll share one pastor's scripture. It's two verses. I've done my best every single petition of this Lord's Prayer to anchor it back to the nature and the character of God because if that's not done, I, I feel that we'll fail to understand prayer as we should. Understand this as we close this morning, that when it comes to forgiveness being offered you at the hand of God, that God is a God of justice. And he will drop the hammer on sin one day. And it won't be pretty. But he doesn't want to. God is a God who delights in mercy, who desires to give forgiveness, who wants to offer to you, who wants the relationship to be intact. He is a God who longs for that. And in case you think that I made it up, Micah 7 tells us this. Micah 7 verse 18. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity, that passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage, he retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. God delights in it. Verse number 19. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. God is not a human who gets sick of you. Some of you in the room this morning may on one hand feel, so there's some undoubtedly that are here that say, you know what, I've never experienced the judicial forgiveness of God. I have never been forgiven of my sins. I want to turn and put my faith in Jesus Christ. There's others in the room that may say, I feel like I'm a million miles from God. I know I'm saved. I know that I know what happened there. I know that I put my faith and trust in him, but I feel so far because of the sin that's crept into my life and I've neglected to confess it. Can I tell you this morning, God delights in mercy. He wants to forgive. He doesn't get sick of you coming to him. I've confessed it a million times. I've messed up a million times. Keep going. God wants to give forgiveness. He wants to restore. He wants that relationship to be intact. If you're a million miles, I promise you, turn to him and he'll walk the whole way. All it takes is a turn and saying, God, I was wrong. Make it right again. He'll do all the work, but it does take on your part. A turning and a confession from your heart of I was wrong and Lord, forgive me and Lord, help me. And that's the prayer at its core. That's the prayer of Matthew 6, 12. It's a petition of God. I messed up today. I messed up yesterday. I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I should have been a better dad. I should have. It's that petition of saying, God, forgive me. Make that relationship right again. Make it whole again. And if you're in need of that this morning, here for the next couple of minutes, I'm going to give you a chance right there in your seat just to do this and to, before you leave, to make this right, forgive us our debts.